Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. Very excited to welcome Kevin Lustig, co-founder and CEO of Scientist.com. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So as a starting point, we'd love to just hear about your background and how you got to where you are today. Great. I have been a scientist for about 40 years, starting to feel a little long in the tooth. I started my career in academia, spent about 15 or 16 years doing academic research at a variety of different universities. Along the way, invented four or five different technologies in cell biology, cloned a couple interesting genes. I was the first to clone the purinergic receptor back in 1991. Then decided in the mid-90s, right when biotech was really getting hot for the very first time, to make the transition from academia over to biotech. And I joined a small company called Solaric. It had been the first company spun out of Genentech back in the early 1990s. We ended up being the first company to go public to start the biotech boom of late 1999, early 2000. And the company was purchased by Amgen for a couple billion dollars around the turn of the century. I then founded a small biotech company called Calypsis. It was a Novartis spin-out founded back in 2001, focused on ultra-high throughput screening technology. And it was really my experience there and a little bit at Solaric that led us to the idea behind the founding of Scientist.com. Great. Thanks, Kevin, for sharing your, your impressive background. So we'd love to talk about you know, the early days of Scientist.com, how you came upon the idea and your entrepreneurial journey and all the twists, I'm sure, that were along the way. Well, first of all, Scientist.com is a two-sided marketplace that connects buyers and sellers of complex research services. You know, so for example, if somebody wants to make an antibody for their coronavirus research, in the past, that person used to have to go into a lab, roll up their sleeves, and do all of that work themselves, often taking many months. With a marketplace like Scientist.com, a scientist can now reach out to tens, in some cases, even hundreds of laboratories around the world and get that antibody made for them in a better, faster, and cheaper way. So scientists.com is really about empowering and connecting scientists. And our mission is to make it possible to cure all human diseases by 2050. Very sort of big, bold mission that really matches what you guys are doing at Biotech 2050. That's awesome. And, you know, from that process, given the success you've had, I'd imagine, you know, things like fundraising and getting customers is perhaps a little bit easier now than it once was in the early days of the company. Any chance you could help us and maybe give us a, the audience a little bit of insight into what it was like in the early days of scientists.com, especially when the biotech industry might not have been as prominent or as a big a sector of investment for, say, technology investors? Yeah, I would have to say it's been a very difficult road. We are tenacious, if nothing else. We founded the company back in 2007. 
the same year that the iPhone came out. So we've been building the company over 14 years and had three business pivots and two near-death experiences along the way. We ended up deciding to fund the company ourselves in the beginning. We raised a few million dollars from our families and from some of our closest friends. So all we had was just a few million to get the company going. We did not raise VC money until 2017. We really tried to bootstrap the company. And it's interesting because we started out where we are today. We founded scientist.com in 2007. We launched the marketplace in 2008, and more specifically, we launched the marketplace on September 15, 2008. And if you recall, that was the day that Lehman Brothers failed, and that is the day that, at least Wikipedia says, the Great Recession started. So we started out somewhat ignominiously, launching on the day the Great Recession started, Obviously, what ended up happening, or maybe not obviously, we got overshadowed. No one came. And, you know, we basically did about $50,000 in business the first year. And we realized that we needed to pivot, right? And we also realized that it was really the pharmaceutical companies that were spending an increasing amount of money on outsourcing. So we really pivoted from building a public-facing marketplace back in 2008 to building enterprise software for the pharmaceutical industry that would help them do parts of their outsourcing process. And we actually built a near profitable business over the next three or four years. We essentially were break even several years in a row. We had no reason to raise additional money. We had hopes that that would expand. Long story short, it did not expand. We hit a point where it was no longer growing. And so we made the decision to basically pivot back to the original model but this time, we were going to build an enterprise marketplace, a marketplace that would get deeply embedded within the pharmaceutical company in terms of legal, in terms of finance, in terms of some other IT functions as well. It's that model that's taken off since 2015. This year, we've done $270 million in marketplace sales through scientists.com. We built enterprise marketplaces for the top 24, the top 30 pharmaceutical companies. And the company's really started to hit its stride. We became profitable for the first time in the first or second month of the pandemic. So we are one of those companies really is taking advantage of many of the tailwinds that are coming out of this pandemic era. You know, there's been this biotech boom. There's been a boom around marketplaces. There's been a boom around remote research. And scientists.com obviously enables all three of those to work more efficiently and effectively. It's been a long 14-year journey where we're sort of an overnight success, 14 <laughs> years in the making, uh, if you will. But we've certainly learned a tremendous amount along the way about what does work and what doesn't work in the pharmaceutical industry. And increasingly, we're moving toward the biotech industry as well. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Quite the ride. I, I love that you said the overnight success thing. I hear that often from folks that are on the outside looking in. What was your viewpoint on, you know, finally taking some venture funding back in 2017? And what's your current viewpoint on venture funding for the business? Or just for other folks that are thinking about, you know, building software companies to enable R&D acceleration? It's a really good question, Rahul. I initially in the, in the 90s was very much in favor of taking VC money. And at a company I co-founded, Calypsis, we raised 170 million VC on top of a couple hundred million in sales in the first few years. And in the end, I found that that really hurt the company, 
raising so much money too quickly. So with scientists.com, we decided to take the exact opposite approach. We really wanted to build the company without raising any VC money. We wanted to maintain control over the company. So even to this day right now, we've got two VCs, two founders, and one sort of founder slash VC who's very founder friendly on the board. So I would advise all of the people out there that are starting companies to pay a lot less attention to the money, more attention to the board composition and how decisions will be made in the future once you set that board up. I think all too often what ends up happening is the founders see the pot of gold, the $50 million, and don't realize that, yes, they will gain in the short term, but ultimately they will lose out in the, in the longer term. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, you know, it's, it's certainly, I think, a key takeaway certainly sounds like that money isn't free. And it's more than just the equity that you're giving up. It's also the uh, ongoing obligation and management, I guess, of the board and the investors as well, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've been very fortunate because we have great people on the board, but I've had friends that have had really difficult times with board members. You want to choose very wisely because these people are going to influence greatly what you can and can't do in the, in the coming years. Absolutely. Well, you, you know, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, this discussion around sort of venture capital and financing really, uh, I think, has also had come to its own, I think, in the life sciences domain specifically. I'm curious, you know, when we when you start to look at the industry that you focused on here in biotech and pharma, curious if you could just help us understand some of the trends that you're seeing in terms of the R&D landscape within the life sciences domain and what that sort of looks like for the next, say, 10 to 20 years. I think... There is one major trend that I think you know Rahul and I are, are trying to take advantage of, and, and that is it has become very clear that pharmaceutical research is incredibly inefficient. And just to give you the numbers that we all know, we as an industry are spending about $185 billion every year, and that goes up about 3% every year. And on average, we're producing about 25 new drugs. And this year, we'll produce about 45. We're having a really great year. Right? But what that means is that we're spending three, four, five billion dollars for each new medicine that we create. And even worse, if you look at those 45 new drugs that we're producing this year or the 25 in an average year, there's only one or two or at most three of them that actually really represent a big step forward. Many of the other drugs are the second generation, third generation, fourth generation, and there's certainly value there, but there's not much in the way of innovative new medicines coming out every year. We realized this back, you know, 14 years ago, but yet we were all very constrained because for the last 500 years, we've been using the scientific method. And that really hasn't changed very much. And if, if I ask you to close your eyes and imagine what a scientist looks like, you, most people tell me, well, I, you know, I see someone that looks like Einstein and he's holding some test tubes and he's in his own lab. And, and I think most of us do feel the same way because that's the way science has been done for 500 years. If you're a scientist and you want to do something, you want to do an experiment, you have to do it with your own hands in your own laboratory. And what we realized 12, 13 years ago was that there have been structural changes in the industry that now make it possible to do scientific research in a fundamentally different way, right? We realized that for the first time, 
there were now thousands of global laboratories all around the world that could do most types of research better, faster, and cheaper than you can do it yourself, right? And I think a lot of this came from the whole patent cliff issue back in 2008 to 12, where a lot of pharmaceutical scientists, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, got laid off. They all went out, formed these small contract research organizations, these small laboratories that then offered their expertise back to the pharmaceutical industry. And I think that helped seed what today is an ecosystem of tens of thousands of global laboratories that can do any experiment a scientist might need. So whereas research done by a pharmaceutical company in its own lab, for every experiment, they're buying the equipment, they're hiring the people, it's turned out that can be up to tenfold more expensive and more time consuming than simply identifying an outside lab that could really quickly, cheaply, and at high quality do that research experiment for you. So scientist.com was initially founded with the idea that we wanted to enable a single highly trained researcher, obviously very highly trained, but a single highly trained researcher to run an entire drug discovery project from their laptop computer without ever requiring direct physical access to a laboratory. And when you think about the future, it's really about platforms like Clora that Rahul runs and platforms like scientist.com that really make virtual drug discovery possible. We are brokering the custom services and, and the custom reagents and Clora is brokering access to world-class experts in each of the individual research areas. It's a little bit like chocolate and peanut butter. They go together very, very well. We realized back at the beginning of the company that what we represented was a fundamentally different way of doing research. And we've been trying to build upon that concept ever since. What I'm really getting at is, you know, our goal is to make it so that if we are spending $180 billion on drug discovery as an industry, that we're producing hundreds of new drugs every year, not tens of new drugs every year. And why is that necessary? Well, because it turns out that despite huge success, you know, there are still hundreds, or I would even say thousands of diseases out there that we do not have cures for. In the rare disease space alone, there are 7,000 diseases for which we have treatments for about 300. That leaves 6,700 rare diseases with no cures, treatments, or medicines. At our current pace of three or four at the most new innovative medicines every year, it would literally take hundreds of years just to address the diseases that we know about already, let alone the ones that we're still continuing to find over time. We believe we really need to find a way to radically and dramatically improve research efficiency. And we've come to the conclusion that what that means is that you really need to outsource everything but the genius. In this case, with Clora, you can outsource everything, including some of the genius, right? We are not saying that you should stop doing your own experiments. We are saying that if you're doing experiments, they should be the ones that you're the best in the world at. They should be the experiments that no one else can do, because if someone else can do it and do it easily, it's almost certain that you can basically get that work done better, faster, and cheaper by going outside. So it's really about virtual research. And in fact, if you look at the trends and it's happening now, what's going to happen over the next 
20 years, a profound transformation in what the R and R&D means, right? It used to be that the R and R&D meant that there were thousands of Merck employees all living in a town in New Jersey or in Pennsylvania, all focused on doing all the work themselves. And in fact, if you remember, you might not be old enough to remember, back then, the mantra was that the pharma industry is not interested in anything not invented here. So they insisted in the 90s that they do all the work themselves. And obviously, what's developing is an ecosystem of biotech companies that in 20 years will become the R in R&D. The pharmaceutical industry, if it's smart, will get out of doing medical research and instead nurture this ecosystem of thousands of biotechs. Then when those biotech assets reach a decent preclinical stage or an early clinical stage, they would simply go in and buy those assets. They're going to get a you know, 10x increase in efficiency and return if they do it that way. Yeah, Kevin, you and I obviously share the same vision in terms of where we think the biotech and, and more broadly just life sciences industry needs to go. And thank you for sharing that audacious vision. So we're, we're still obviously in the throes of the pandemic, but we're starting to see some light. As you reflect on the development of COVID vaccines, would love to hear your thoughts on how you think that process has gone. Do you see some hope in terms of, you know, what you were talking about in terms of acceleration and changing definition of the R and R&D? Um, would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I have been incredibly impressed with what has happened over the past year. A year ago or nine months ago, when people said, do you really think it's possible to develop a vaccine in a year? I said emphatically, no, it is going to be more than a year. I don't know how much more, but it'd be very, very difficult. So I am very impressed with our scientific community, the way we've come together in a way that I've never seen before in my life, the way we've been able to produce you know, multiple vaccines that apparently work reasonably well in under a year is absolutely phenomenal. And, and it really, I think, shows that, well, first of all, I'm, I'm hoping that it puts science in a different light. You know, over the past 20 years, I was getting increasingly concerned that scientists were becoming the bad guys. And, and I think at this point, the public has come back around to the notion that, oh, wait a minute, you know, we like scientists. They're actually doing things that really do make our lives better. And this is the obvious example. I'm reminded of like, Grant, I wasn't alive at the time, but of the space race and how I think this compelling global event of, you know, the Soviets going into space compelled a country to act. It almost kind of feels like this is our, you know, sort of same Sputnik moment. Would you agree? That is a, I think that's a great analogy. It is very much like the space race. The real question is whether it will continue once we get past the next year. The downside, of course, is that much of that collaboration is within each country's borders. If I had to fault what we we're doing, I, I would have said that we should have banded together with the science agencies of other countries around the world and approached this in, in a global way. I think most, company, most countries went the other direction and it became more of a nationalistic thing where we want to get the vaccine for us and ahead of other people. So I think there are some issues there, but I'm eager to find out whether this, this sort of good feeling around science is going to persist once the pandemic is in the rearview mirror. 
Yeah, absolutely. One thing I'm curious about switching gears slightly is, you know, that ecosystem of biotech companies that you had alluded to that, you know, the 20 or 30,000 that could help support drug development in the future. A key part of that is obviously capital and the access to it and and the speed with which uh, one can leverage it, right, to advance to a milestone. I'm curious what you're sort of seeing out in the marketplace now uh, from a financing perspective in terms of venture capital, SPACs, et cetera, in the biotech industry. So uh, it's a great question. We we are in a boom right now, a once in a generation boom, I believe. It feels very similar to the feeling I got when I lived in San Francisco in 1999. The dot-com bubble, it, it really feels like that right now. Today is a great time to be a biotech, great time to start a biotech, uh, great time to be a biotech with a clinical asset. In fact, if you're, if you're talking about the, the one section that is going to do the best over the next few years, it really has to be those more established biotechs that have a late stage preclinical asset or you know, even, even better would be a phase one or a phase two asset. There is an enormous premium being paid for those companies today. And you, you know, there have already been over 200 biotech IPOs this year. And a big part of that has been through SPACs, as you've mentioned. You know, after many years of sort of being considered a lesser tool, SPACs have really come to the fore this year. Every banker, every VC is is rushing to form a SPAC because they have some serious advantages for those investors. But SPACs have now become mainstream. There have been at least 100 SPAC IPOs so far this year. SPACs, of course, are special purpose acquisition companies. And there are at least 200 in the wings that have already been formed. And as you know, the way these SPACs work is they raise a pot of money, and then they have two years to basically give that pot of money to a company and bring it public. And if they don't spend that pot of money, they have to give it back to the investors. So you've got 200 of these already formed. The clock is ticking. And then behind those, I understand, are another three, four, five hundred. So, so there has been a SPAC boom. That's helped bring a lot of high quality companies public over the past six or eight months. And I think going forward, that boom is going to continue, but it's also going to spread down to some of the companies that perhaps whose assets aren't quite as good as this first wave. So if you're a biotech company and you have an asset, even a preclinical stage asset, it's a good bet today that you can find a SPAC that will actually give you the 100 to 200 million or more help you with investment in the private equity once the SPAC goes public, help you raise the hundreds of millions of dollars you need to get your compounds through the clinic and, and approved by the FDA. Excellent. Well, Kevin, thank you for indulging us in a variety of, of topics and sharing the early story of, of scientist.com. And thank you for taking on this significant challenge that our industry has been facing for decades now and to your colleagues at, at scientist.com for, for executing on your, on your vision. It was great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you both. I really appreciated being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.